All right, you guys. Well, I think we might as well get started here. We're uh, continuing in our Sunday school class, Doctrine of Man and Sin. And just to orient you, we're in the Doctrine of Man first, and then we will move to the Doctrine of Sin for the second part of the class. This is going to be a little bit of a longer class than normal because I basically wanted to fill in the rest of the year so that we, starting in January, could get back on our schedule of a trimester of classes. So, I'm uh, in session three, and we're going to be talking about man as male and female, part one. We're going to spend three sessions on this issue, and in this session, we're going to talk about how man is male and female, and how male and female human beings are equal, and also how they're different. So... Pretty uh, non-controversial stuff. We'll just kind of breeze through it, and then we'll we'll go from there. So why don't we uh, why don't we get started with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day, and we thank you for your wisdom and goodness in giving us corporate worship, and placing us in local bodies of believers where we can be fed and cared for and nurtured. And Lord, we also recognize that our corporate assemblies are in some ways a foretaste of heaven. And Lord, as we on earth are assemblies, we know that we are also part of the great assembly of your people gathering even now in your presence in heaven as described in Hebrews 10. And we thank you for the privilege of being a part of your people and being able to gather for worship and the teaching of your word. And we pray that you would feed our souls this morning with your truth, that we would continue to be sanctified by your truth. And we pray that you would teach and instruct us that we might be equipped for every good work, as Paul said, through your word. Uh, please help me to help us to navigate through this, what can be a difficult issue, um, and that we would have wisdom and discernment, and also humble hearts, moldable and pliable hearts, not to the things of this world, but to your, the teaching of your word. And we pray that you would bless us as a result of this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so session three, we're going to start with the fact that God has created, to use the modern lingo, the gender binary. So, we're going to go through a lot of texts here, but to start with, uh, open to Genesis 1, and uh, we're going to look at the fact that God created man to be either one of two genders, male and female. Obviously, the Bible doesn't use the word gender, just using the modern lingo here, um, but we know, but it basically is equivalent to what the Bible means by male and female. So let's start with Genesis 1, 27. And if someone would read that verse, and then if someone else, who would volunteer to turn to Matthew 19, verse 4? Someone would be willing to do that? Okay. So we'll start with Genesis 1.27, and then Isaiah will read Matthew 19.4, which uh, complements that. So Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then Matthew 19.4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Okay, so we have, first of all, this Genesis account of God creating man. And you see that in the opening line, so God created man in his own image. And that man there would, could be translated mankind. In other words, the human race as a whole. And then in the image of God, he created him. And then male and female, he created them. So you see that mankind is created with two genders. Man is created to be male or female. Both male and female are man, as in mankind. And then we see that this sort of diversity of genders within the one human race is affirmed by Jesus as God's created order that Jesus himself affirmed the gender binary to use the modern lingo. Okay, so there's explicit biblical evidence, and I would be remiss to not point out that um, there's a sense in which the entire Bible bears witness to this, right? Because what do you see throughout the Bible? Men and women, right? <laughs> and that's all you see is men and women. Uh, so there's a sense in which if you were just to read through the whole Bible you would see Genesis 1.27, 
played out uh, through just the reality of the fact that it's full of characters who are either, who are all human beings, but are either male or female. And you don't see anything else than that, of course. Um, but in our day, we, that needs to be said. And also we could say that we see evidence of this in nature. In other words, all, most people throughout history have not, have not denied this fact that, that God created man, male and female, because they see it in the natural world, right? Um, and so you see just from the design of humanity, when you look at human beings as a whole, that no matter what, how you dress them up, at the end of the day, when you look at their bodies, their physiological makeup, there's two kinds. Um, there's male and female. Of course, male and female, there's a diversity of, different, uh, of differences within maleness and femaleness, which we'll talk about. Um, you could even say that there is a spectrum when it comes to male and female that, you know, men and women are, uh, they're, they're, men are different from one another in different ways. Um, not, not just in shape, and, but also in temperament and other things. But they're all men. They're all male. And the same with females. And, that, and so we're not just talking about, you know, the physical body parts. We're also talking about um, physiology in terms of how the brain works and other things like that. Like, in other words, down to your DNA, right? Things that you can't, that we didn't even know about till modern science there is differences between male and female. And that, so that natural evidence that we observe with our eyes is just confirming what Genesis 1.27 says, that God made man, male, and female. All right? Now, we should note that today we have to say no other genders exist. So anything other than male and female is just a creation of human beings that really isn't a creation of anything. It's a construct in the minds of certain people, but it doesn't actually have any reality in the world. In other words, you can cut off body parts, you can uh, do surgeries, you can dress up in different clothes, but it doesn't actually change the reality that man is made with only two genders, male and female. All right, any questions on that? Comments? Pretty straightforward, pretty clear. Okay. So, the theme of this session is man, male and female, and how they are, how men and women are both equal and different. And I want to start by just talking about what the Bible says about the equality of men and women. In what ways are men and women equal? Well, for one, men and women are equally human. In other words, both men and women, they're not different, not different species, right? In the sense of uh, totally different types of creatures. Uh, they are both human beings. And you see this, first of all, in Genesis 1.27, as I pointed out, you see the, the blending. So God created man, mankind in his own image, and then you get down to the bottom, male and female, he created them. So, male and female are both man, are both mankind, to use the sort of plural. But you also see it, if you go to the next chapter, in which, if, if I'd, I've described it this way before, you might have heard it, but let me just reiterate that. What's essentially happening is chapter 1, you have the creation of the whole universe, and you have the creation of mankind described within that. And this described in a general way. Then it's like Moses goes back. He zooms in and slows down the camera to show you exactly how God created man and woman. So in Genesis 1, it's just described in a general way. In Genesis 2, the tape is rewound and the camera is zoomed in. And it's like a slow motion type of description of how God created man and and that's one of many pointers to the fact that man is the centerpiece of God's creation. That the create that the world was created for as a theater 
for God's interaction with man. Okay, so, and as I, as I pointed out last time, the, the reason for that is because man is unique among all of his creatures, setting angels aside because there is some mystery there, but on the earth, all of his creatures, none of them are made in God's image, only mankind is. Um, now, if you look at Genesis 2 and you go to Genesis 2.23, where Adam is first introduced to the woman that man made, that God made. Look what he says. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. So there is diversity there. Woman is not the same as man, but there, but there is a, a sameness in the sense that she's bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. She's human like he is human, to use the sort of modern lingo, right? So you can see it there. There's equality in the fact that men and women are equally human. Also, men and women are equally in the image of God, right? So if you go back to Genesis 1 and you look at verse 27, um, actually, if you go to verse 26 and verse 27, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then you go down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, obviously, if both male and female are part of man, then that means they're both made in God's image. And you can even see the parallelism there in verse 27, that in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God made man. And he made man in his own image, and that includes both male and female. And I would also say that this is really evident throughout the scripture, isn't it? Like in Genesis 9, when God says, whoever kills, uh, you know, takes the life of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Is he only talking about males, right? (laughs) Of course not. Um, To murder a woman is the same as to murder a man in terms of its... Uh, gravity and penalty because men and women are both man. They're both humans equally in the image of God, right? Okay. Then we also say that men and women are equal recipients of what has been called the creation mandate. So if you go down to verse 28, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then there's a, a, another command in verse 29. But if you, if you focus on verse 28, which sort of captures what has been called the creation mandate to be Fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the earth and everything on it. That belongs to both men and women. How do you know that? What in the text indicates that that mandate is the inheritance of both men and women? God said to them. Right, there's a plural there, right? Right, exactly. So, within the mandate itself is implication that we're, it's given to both men and women. Now, it is interesting that God gives, that God creates the man first in Genesis 2 and gives him these commands to, you know, puts him in the garden, commands him to work it and keep it, and then creates the woman after that. So, you know, when exactly this mandate was given, was it given to the man and then relayed to the woman after she was created? We don't know. Uh, and certainly there is an order there that we're going to talk about. But in Genesis one what from a 50,000 foot perspective, you see that however it was relayed, it was given to both men and women. So they are equally heirs, which, which by the way means that it's men and women who are to exercise dominion over the earth. Men and women together, right? Are both, in that sense, royalty. <laughs> God's vice regents. 
And this is why you see that even as you look at the natural order, it is both men and women that take dominion of the earth. Oh yes, in different ways, right? There, there's emphasis. There's different spheres in which they operate, different strengths and weaknesses that they have. Yet there's a, a dominion that is worked out by both men and women. So even as a, a simple way of seeing this is even as God told Adam to put him in a garden, right? And in that day, the imagery of that garden would have been like, that people would have thought when they heard that language of like a royal park, you know, if you went to a, a palace, you'd see a, a park that was set in order. It, it was distinct from the wilderness around it, right? Because it was ordered uh, like a garden. And he put them there. And then he said that they were to work it and keep it. And that they were to also fill the earth, which meant that they were to take dominion over the earth by ordering it. Something like the garden, perhaps. Well, it is interesting that one of the ways that you can tell where human beings are, wherever they are in the earth, is what? There's wilderness that has been ordered, right? <laughs> and that involves both the man and the woman. So I can tell you that there's, if you just come to our house... Now, we all have the neighbor that we wish would take a little bit more dominion of their <laughs> property than they do, right? And that's because of the fall. But generally, if you came to our house, you'd see that it's been ordered. Um, you know, hedges have been cut, grass has been mowed, things have been planted. And you go inside and you see that it's been decorated and, and painted and upgraded and all this stuff so that it's, that, that's... That's part of the expression of man as image bearers of God taking dominion over the earth. And I guarantee, I tell you right now, that ain't just a man's thing, right? In fact, if it was, it would have a much more Spartan look to it, like a college boy's apartment, right? Than if it didn't have both men and women involved. So, yes, we have different proclivities, strengths, weaknesses, and yes, there is a spectrum when it comes to men and women, uh, even within their genders, as, that, as their preferences and their inclinations, yet both have this equal uh, inheritance of the mandate, of the creation mandate. And then finally, men and women are equal in their standing before God in Christ. So when we look at redemption, when we look at the church, we see that they're is an equality both in terms of our relation to God as his people. It's not like, you know, one gender has uh, a little bit more intimate place or a higher place in God, in a hierarchy before God. Uh, and also with respect to the possession of all the blessings of redemption, there is an equality there. So this is what, this is what Paul means in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. If you will turn there. Galatians 3.28. This is what Paul's talking about. He's been talking about the Abrahamic promise and how it's fulfilled through the seed of Abraham, Christ, and how the blessing of Abraham is given to all those who are in Christ. And then in that context, with respect to the possession of the blessing promised to Abraham, now received in Christ, he says, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, right? So, in, our, in terms of our possession of the redemptive blessings and our standing in Christ, our gender makes no difference, we are equal. Now, obviously, Paul is speaking about a certain, within a certain context, about a certain thing. He's not saying there are no gender differences. We don't read into that. That Well, see, in Christ, all of our gender distinctions are erased. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a specific thing. And then you can see the same thing articulated in 1 Peter 3.7. If someone would read 1 Peter 3.7, that would be helpful. Likewise, husband, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And when you see the word you there, if you're using ESV, heirs with you, there, and some of you may have a little number there, footnote, 
You look down at the bottom, what does it say? Joint heirs. Joint heirs, right? So, this is another description of the fact that we are equal with respect to our possession of the grace of life, right? Of the grace of God in Jesus Christ that has brought us eternal life. Um, So there's no distinction between men and women in these ways. And I'm not saying that there's not other ways in which you could see the equality of men and women expressed. But at least in these, some of the most important and fundamental ways. Any questions about the equality of men and women? You could say equal in dignity, equal in worth, equal in stand before God, equal with respect to salvation, equal in the creation mandate, equally human, on and on. Any questions, comments? Okay. Now, let's talk about how men and women are different. Because contrary to what our society wants to say, contrary to the thrust of the feminist revolution, as it, as, at least as it unfolded in its later machinations, it is not a good thing, it is not right and true and good to say that there we should try to erase distinctions between men and women so that men and women have the same role in our society. That that does not reflect God's design from creation. And the first thing we see is that men and women are created to be different. So in other words, when you go back to Genesis 2, so turn back to Genesis 2, and you look at the creation of man and woman as it was zoomed in and slowed down in Genesis 2, you see that there are distinctions from the very beginning between men and women, that they were created to be different. And the first is that God created the man first and then the woman. And the reason I bring this up is because Paul brings it up later on in uh, his epistles as a foundation, as a, as a reason why there's men and women are to have different roles in the church. He points back to this fact. So look at chapter 2, you see verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. But it's only the man there. Man as opposed to woman, where after a bunch of other things happen, God creates the woman down in verses 21 and 22. So there is this gap between the man and the woman. The man is created first, then the woman. So verse 21, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay, so the the man was created first, then the woman. You also see that God created the woman for the man as a helper fit for him. That's the language that is used in your ESV translation. If you're using an ESV, it could also be translated a suitable helper. In other words, there's a complementarity in the design of men and women. They're designed to fit together, not just physically, which is also true, but also in terms of the differences between them are meant to complement each other so that as they come together in marriage, they are suitable partners for one another. And you see that in verse, in chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And if you have a little footnote next to fit for, what does it say down there in the bottom? Corresponding to. Yeah, corresponding to it. Suitable to. Fit for. And who is the helper? Well, it's the woman that he makes a few verses later, right? Also, you see that God created the man from the dust, and he created the woman from the man. That also is a distinction. He created the man from the dust in chapter 2, verse 7. He created the woman from a rib from the man. That's why Luther playfully called his wife uh, my rib. I'm not suggesting that, man, but I'm just saying he's... It was a recognition that, you know, this is why Adam said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He realized she was... 
the, the fact that God created the woman out of the man was, was meant to express, um, to press home the fact that she was, a, was what was like him in humanity and suitable to him. Okay, then also God named the man, verse 20. And I say that because, not because the text tells us that God named the man, but it just has happened clearly. And then all of a sudden he has a name. So if you look at verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper. Now, it is interesting that, you know, there's some ambiguity here because the word Adam is also the word translated man at the beginning of the sentence. But there's no definite article there. So it's, that's why people have, in the first it's the man, and then it's man uh, in the second part of the verse, which indicates to translators that, ah, here, see, is the first time that the man is referred to by his name, Adam, which means man. But then when you look at the name of the woman in verse uh, 23, the man said of Eve, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So it's not in any way demeaning, but there is this relationship there. God created the man and named him, and then God created the woman from the man, and the man was allowed to name the woman. Called her Eve, or or woman. Sorry, she was called woman. Now, just to note here, that men and women are created different is also evident in their physical bodies in a variety of ways, right? I mean, obviously... The fact that you see these distinctions between men and women, all the distinctions are not listed in the text, are they? (laughs) But if you look at women and you look at men, whether you're looking at their DNA or at their physical bodies, you see, ah, yes. These distinctions we see in the text also reflect distinctions that have physiological components as well. And by the way, that has to be because they are designed to be fruitful and multiply, right? And so they're designed to be complementary to each other in a lot of different ways, one of which is with respect to their reproductive organs so that they might have children together and come, come together in marriage and have children together through the sexual union. So they're created to be different. You see it from the very beginning and it's evident in nature. Now we deny that and say, no, there's no difference. But you can deny it all you want. It don't change reality, to be blunt. Okay, next, just to bring in the other aspects of differences, God has also assigned, so he's created them to be different. He's also assigned different roles for men and women in the human family. So at the end of Genesis 2, you see that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Ah, so now, in this joining that happens, which is the foundation of marriage, the institution of marriage, all of a sudden the woman is now wife, covenant partner. And, the, and, the, and later the man is the husband, right? And then they two shall become one flesh, which as you watch that language of one flesh play out in the scripture, you realize that while it may not be reduced entirely to sexual union, yet it clearly is, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, a euphemism for sexual union. And so you see that this is the genesis of the human family. There is man and woman come together as one flesh in the covenant of marriage, and then they bear children, and now you have the human family. So the human family is not a social construct made up by man, but something that was intended by God, reflected in his design of differences between male and female, and by the fact that he brought the woman to the man, and by the end of Genesis 2, you see that he has intended that they join in marriage and form families. And within those families, The creational differences are expressed in role differences. So while they are equal in many ways, they have different roles within the human family. 
And so, this is just a summary of the two roles. Let's look at men first. Men are assigned, if I had to summarize it here, summarizing this particular thing could be pretty dangerous. So, you know, if I get things wrong or left things out, forgive me, but we'll look at a bunch of text and you'll, you'll see it. Men are assigned the responsibility to lead, protect, provide for their family with sacrificial love. Okay, so let's go to some texts. First to Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll look at verses 25 through 30. So would someone be willing to read Ephesians 5, 25 through 30? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and gent her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we we are members of his body. Okay, so there's lots to talk about there in that passage, but I just want to point out that you see protection, provision, care, nourishing, right? Uh, All wrapped up in that. And it's governed by sacrificial love. That just as Christ gave himself up for her, loved the church, gave himself up for the church, husbands are to love their wives and give themselves up for her. And what does that look like? Caring for her, nourishing, protecting, providing for her just like his, you, his own body. Because after all, they are, the two shall become one flesh, right? But you also see down in verse 4 of chapter 6 that there's a leadership aspect to it. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, while in Colossians it says, children obey your parents, right? Quoting the fifth commandment. So, both the mother and the father have a responsibility to lead and train the children, but the buck sort of stops with the fathers, right? Fathers... Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, so uh, there's a leadership role in the family given to the husband, as well as a nourishing, caring, protecting, providing for role. All of it to be governed by sacrificial love. And then if you go over to Colossians, let's go over there, which is a sort of sister epistle to Ephesians, Colossians chapter 3. And if you look over at verse 19, it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And look at 21. Again, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So it's sort of a summary, but you still see the same command to love and the prohibition against harshness uh, that would provoke to anger. Okay, so, but there's, a, there's a, a role there that is being described. If you look at 1 Timothy 3, Let's look there. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. When you look at this passage, if you start in verse 1, you see that this is a qualification for the office of overseer or elder or pastor in a church. And what it's indicating is that this office is to be held by men and that these men are to embody Christian godliness uh, in order to be qualified to serve in this office. And so if you look down at verses 4 and 5, it says, He, that is a candidate for the office of elder, must manage. That word could be translated rule or govern, right? Just exercising authoritative leadership and management of his own household well. This is not to say that elders should be ruling their household, but other men don't need to do that. The point is that If someone is going to serve as an elder, they should be fulfilling this responsibility that all men have in a responsible way. And that if a man isn't managing his household, he's neglecting a fundamental duty of men in general, and therefore he's not qualified to serve as elder. Why? Because an elder has a responsibility to also manage the household of God, right? If someone does not know, verse 5, how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Okay, so 
There's a management, a leadership of his household that belongs to the man in distinction from a woman. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So here again we see the way that a husband is to, that a man is to exercise leadership in the family in a way that, ex- that shows understanding and care. The language of weaker vessel there would have evoked the idea of a precious vase on a shelf that you, when you come to that, you don't treat it the same way as you do the wooden bucket outside the back door. Or you go, ah, slosh it around and bang it on the thing. No, when you come to the precious vase, you handle with care. Now, that is men. What about women? We see a different role given to women. So let's go back to, let's actually start with Genesis 2.18. And I'm just going to read this to remind you that from the beginning, a woman's function in distinction from a man is actually there in that text about her creation, that she has made a suitable helper for the man. Now, obviously, that's not for every man. (laughs) That's for her man, that is, the man she would join with in the covenant of marriage. Now, in general, women are made, created to be suitable helpers for men, but they are to be the particular helper of a man in marriage. Okay, so a woman... And I can summarize it this way. A woman is to willingly submit to the authority of their husbands and to follow their husband's lead, helping them manage the family in complementary ways. Okay, so the helping, the complementarity is there in Genesis 2.18. And you also see it in passages like Ephesians 5. If we go back to Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 24. If someone would read Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then if you go down to verse 33, however, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There you see, side by side, this complementarity. There is distinction there. The husband is to lead the wife. She is to follow his lead. He is to care for her with sacrificial love. She is to respect and honor him as her head. And all of this is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Equality in humanity and dignity and worth, etc. But distinction and complementarity in function. Uh, If you go to Colossians 3, you see the same thing. Colossians 3.18 Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then the next, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So again, complementarity. Here we see the partnership in raising children. Children, obey your parents. Parents, plural, husband and wife, in everything for this pleases the Lord. So there is there's a helper function uh, But there is complementarity within that because then the fathers are not to provoke their children lest they become discouraged. As we saw from Ephesians 5, the fathers have the ultimate responsibility to ensure that the training of the children gets done, even though the wife is a partner to him in that task. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Would someone read that? 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Quinn, do you got that one? 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6? I got it. Okay, Paul, you got it. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if you, if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
our society has been so influenced, pervasively influenced by the feminist movement, that when even reading texts like this grates against us, right? But let me just ask you this. Why, why is that? Is, there because, is that because there's something wrong with the text? Where do you think the wrongness lies? Where does the distortion come? It's in us, right? And so uh, there are things to understand here. Like, for instance, when it says that Sarah, it points out that Sarah called Abraham Lord in an Old Testament text. That doesn't mean that, you know, husbands are to demand that their wives call them Lord. But it was just that that was an expression of respect to Abraham. And he's pointing that to that godly women who would be like Sarah will show respect to their husbands. Well, even it says, obey, she obeyed Abraham, that is, be subject to his leadership. Now, we need to qualify all of that. This is not just like, do everything that your husband says, no matter what. Of course, all of this is under the authority of Christ. It's assuming that your husband is uh, leading you in a Christ-like way, etc., etc. There are limitations to authority, which we could talk about. But in general, we're just describing the general contours of the distinct relationship or roles of men and women in marriage. One other thing here is Proverbs 31. And I think this is an important text because it it sort of fleshes out uh, the ideal of a godly wife, an excellent wife. And, and, it, and it gives you a, a lot of things that you don't see in other texts. You see her industriousness. You see the regard that her husband has for her, the role that she plays in the home. Proverbs 31.10 and following, An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He delegates responsibilities to her. He doesn't worry about them because of her godliness of character, her faithfulness, her ability. She does him good and not harm. All the days of her life she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and her and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates." You see strength, you see courage, you see hard work, you see industriousness, you see a variety of different things that she does, both inside the home and outside the home. You see that she is regarded and praised, she has a reputation, she teaches the truth, she is wise and knows how to relay truth, and on and on. And so that sort of fills out some of the question marks about the details of uh, the language used in other texts. What does this mean? Well, it, it doesn't mean, you know, a woman who only does, you know, these things that we've sort of made up in our mind as the uh, stereotypical woman. No, th- this fleshes out a, a whole range of things. And I would say, too, that we need to remember that our world is so different from the world of that Paul was speaking of in the New Testament where since the Industrial Revolution, the functioning of the home has changed so dramatically where it used to be that you know men and women would often work side by side from their home in, on the farm or some business that was operated out of their home and they were working together. Men were much more 
in the home with the children. Now men go off to work for hours at a time and come back. Uh, and, and, off, and the work is not centered in the home as it was before. And what that means is there are, there are some questions that we have to answer. How does all of this work out in a modern post-industrial revolution context? And, and we need to be careful that we don't necessarily draw hard lines where the Bible uh, doesn't draw hard lines in these things. But nevertheless, you can see that this is the way that certain distinctions between men and women work out in the family, that they're created different and they have different functions in the home that, are, that they don't in any way undermine their equality, their inherent equality and dignity, but they do but they do express the creation differences between men and women. Okay, so any questions about this? All right. I don't really have time for questions anyway, so let's move on. God has also assigned different roles for men and women in the church. Okay, so I'm going to just pull all these up, and we're going to have to work through these very quickly. When you look at the qualifications for elder... In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, you see that uh, not only are male pronouns used throughout, but also you see that the, he, it's said that he is to be a one-woman man or the husband of one wife. And when you complement that by the fact that when you look at, for instance, the, the first leaders, the apostles of the church that were given the initial role of the leadership of the church, it was all men. When you look at the fact that throughout the history of the Old Covenant, there was male leadership always under the Old Covenant, except in certain circumstances when there was such severe dysfunctionality that the men were not leading, as in the days of the judges, they went to Deborah, and that was not, that was not to say, hey, see, really, God doesn't care if men or women lead. It says... It was, it was meant to express how things how dysfunctional things had gotten in Israel. There was no men leading. <laughs> and so God raised up Deborah to do it. And that was sort of a condemnation of the men. In fact, that plays out in that chapter 5 of Judges, if you look. But generally, male headship, male leadership, just like in the family, is also the pattern in the church. And you can see it throughout. When it comes to the office of deacon in the church... Probably only qualified men are to hold the office of deacon. I say probably because if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and you look at the qualifications for deacons, you get to verse 11 and it says, so it's our, it talks, it uses the same kind of language to this point. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households. Well, overall, you would say... It's pretty much the same as elders there to be husband of one wife. It's male pronouns used throughout, except when you get to verse 11, it says their wives. Does anyone have a footnote there? Women likewise. Yeah, it, it does say, or women likewise. In other words, the word in Greek is actually gune, which could mean woman or wife. And so... The point is that the church has had a long debate about whether or not Paul is saying that there could be women deacons and then giving qualifications for them as well, as well as men, or is he giving qualifications about a deacon's wife? Um, And it could go either way. I do think that there is reason to believe that it's probably wife, not woman, because, for instance, when you look at the first deacons, the sort of proto-deacons, ordained in Acts 6? Were there any women ordained? No, it was only men. There were six, six men that ordained to the office. And so you wonder, there are other texts to take into account. It is a debatable issue, I think, not a, an issue where you're going to be you know, totally unfaithful to the scripture if you land one way or the other. Um, but I think probably only 
qualified, only men are qualified to hold the office of deacon. And then, of course, um, other texts indicate that when it comes to the gatherings of the church, uh, men only are to exercise op- uh, positions of authority and to teach men in the church. So it doesn't mean that women don't have a gift to teach, the ability to teach. Titus says older women are to teach the younger women. The Proverbs 31 woman, she taught. There are contexts in which women teach, but not teaching men or holding authority over men in the church. That would be a reversal of the creation order. And so you get to 1 Timothy chapter 2. You guys know the text. 11 through 14. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then, he, and then notice, he doesn't root this in a cultural norm, but in a creation norm. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, there's lots of things to say about that, and it needs to be understood properly in terms of what's he mean about Adam, woman being deceived and not the man. Uh, that in no way means that you know women are more gullible than men, etc. But he is pointing to the creation and fall account and saying that this principle of women not teaching or exercise authority over man is rooted in a creation difference between men and women and an order that God designed from the beginning that just as Adam was formed first, then Eve, that he is to exercise the role of leader and not uh, and not the other way around. And you see the same principle in 1 Corinthians 11. And I'm not going to read the whole text because, you know, we're running out of time here. But you see the same type of thing where he talks about he says, verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So, you know, you can see that there's this order of headship laid out. And then it says that a woman is to wear a head covering as a sign of, of authority, that she is under the authority of her husband. And then it says, so that's verse 10. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And that's why. Well, he goes back in verse 9. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority. So there is a relationship of of headship of, of the husband to the wife that's rooted in the creation order, that a man was... Not created for a woman, but woman was created for man as a suitable helper. And he says, and all things are for God. And he points out that this doesn't mean that there's... He points out, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. So it's not to say that men don't need woman or women don't need men. There's a mutual dependence, but there is an order of uh, creation. And then he points out later on in chapter, or in verse 16, he says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious about these things, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, this is the common practice of all of the churches. And then you go over to chapter 14, and you see the principle of, again, that Paul articulated 1 Timothy 2, that women are not to be teaching men or holding authority over men in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 through 35. Again, this is language that grates against uh, the ears of modern people, but the Bible says without even blinking an eye, he says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. That doesn't mean completely silent. After all, he says that he talks about women praying uh, in the assembly, prophesying in the assembly. I think it's referring to some kind of teaching role. The women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And again, you have to clarify what it means for women to speak in church. It's not speaking at all. 
but there is, I think it's just a reflection of the principle that Paul laid down. To teach or hold authority over man is a reversal of God's intended order. Now, women are given the full range of spiritual gifts. So this is not an issue of being gifted. And they're to exercise those gifts within the church, um, albeit in different contexts. So men and women are to exercise their gifts in different ways, reflected of God's design. And and though their role is different from men's in the church, we are in no way saying that it's less important. This is the big hang-up, isn't it? Any Our society says if women are not allowed to do things that men can do, and now we say if men are not allowed to do things that women can do, like have babies or whatever, uh, then that is somehow oppressive. And that makes the woman or the man inferior if they can't do everything that, if they're not allowed to do everything that the opposite gender can do. But that's not the logic of the Bible. The logic of the Bible says there's equality, inherent equality, that is not in any way undermined by distinctions in roles. Distinctions in roles do not make you inferior. They are not oppressive. Rather, they are designed by God for His glory and for our good. Okay, now let me just say a couple of other things here because I don't want to miss out on this. Gender roles in the fall. The fall certainly affected gender roles. You remember the curse upon the woman? Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. We're not exactly sure everything that that means, but there's clearly going to be some, some distortion of the gender roles, and it's going to lead to tension as a result of the fall. However, the distinctions between men and women, both in uh, their nature right, and in their function, go back before the fall. To that time when Genesis 1.31 said God looked at what he had made and it was very good. So they're not, uh, we shouldn't think of it this way that, well, man and women were exactly equal in everything and then the fall happened. And that's when all this, you know, gender role differences and gender roles came. But now in redemption, all that is going to be erased and we'll go back to them being exactly the same in every way. No, the distinctions are part of God's good creation. Just so you're aware of the terminology, if you've ever heard complementarianism and egalitarianism, this reflects a debate that has gone on in the evangelical church. Complementarianism is the view that I've articulated, that God created men and women as equals with different gender-defined roles. Whereas egalitarianism is a competing view that many evangelical Christians have held, that men and women while they're not identical, one's gender does not determine one's status or role in life, nor does it limit spiritual giftedness and ministry opportunities. In other words, yes, we are different, but that shouldn't mean that we have different roles in the family and in church. And there are spectrums here, you know. I've met people who say, well, women shouldn't be pastors, but they can still teach men in the church, etc. So there's maybe spectrums here, um, but, uh, but generally, if you've heard the, that language that reflects this debate within evangelicalism on these issues, and we're going to talk more about these later, but let me go through some of these implications here. From everything that we've seen, first of all, it means we have to reject the transgender movement and affirm that God has designed man to be only male or female, and that those are fixed categories. We must heartily embrace our own gender and the distinct roles that God has assigned to us in the family and in the church as being good. And we say, if we grate against them in our souls, the problem is not with God's design or His Word. The problem is with us and our sinful hearts and the ways that we've been shaped by the world. Also, churches must be willing to uphold God's design for gender roles in the church and resist the pressure to conform to cultural norms. I tell you what, with the gender revolution that is going on right now, there's such a great temptation in churches to say, well, yeah, we're not going to embrace the transgender stuff, but at least we can move on the you know, roles of men and women in the church. Right? 
So at least we won't offend the world there, but we're going to draw the line here. Well, I would just argue that if you're going to reject God's word here, then what's going to keep you from rejecting God's word over here, too? might be a different degree, but they're the same in uh, the root. Men must resist the fleshly desire to abuse or abdicate their God-given authority in the family and the church out of either pride or laziness. And women must resist the fleshly desire to resent their God-given role, God-God-given role, in the family and the church and to seek to usurp that of the man. Okay, you guys, I know that was a lot. Fire hose. I know I conveniently didn't leave any time for questions, but that's not because I didn't want to take questions. It's just because, like always, I went long. So feel free to come and talk with me after, and I'm happy to discuss these things further. And I may have to try to leave some time for questions maybe at the beginning of our next session. So if you have some, write them down. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... Lord, your word and its clarity, we recognize that as sinners, we are prone in our flesh to resist and question your word. Please forgive us of that and give us soft and humble hearts before you, receptive to your word. And we pray that you would help us to embrace it as good, that we wouldn't have this attitude of, well, I guess it's in the Bible, so we have to believe it, but I don't like it that we would learn to, to love your word, to recognize its inherent goodness, and that it will lead to flourishing in life. And Father, we pray that you would help us to fulfill your word on these matters in our lives, that as men and women, we would em- heartily embrace, and by the power of your spirit, who is renewing us from the inside and reshaping our families, our marriages, and our church as a mini new society, that we would be fulfilling distinct roles that you have given to us as equal image bearers in the church. And we pray that you would uh, bless us as we do that and that we would increasingly be a light, a city set on the hill displaying to the world uh, the goodness of your creation order and the power of Christ's redemptive grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.